Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee. And today I am very excited to be joined by my good friend, Andy Crouch. Andy Crouch is the executive editor of Christianity Today. He's a prolific author, author of three really important books for Christians. His first book is Culture Making, which really helps us think through what what it is we're talking about when we talk about culture and our responsibility as Christians to create and to make culture. His second book is called Playing God, uh, Redeeming the Use of Power, uh, a really interesting and thought-provoking book on the important uses of power, uh, acknowledging our own power, and how to use it for for the benefit of others. And the third book, his, his book that is really just releasing now, is called Strong and Weak, about how the strong can act on behalf of the weak, a very timely book. And so we're going to talk about all three of those themes, talk about culture, talk about evangelicals' role in the culture, and how we should think through all of these things. It'll be a fascinating conversation. Andy is one of the most important thinkers, I think, uh, in the Christian world today. By the way, if you'd like to hear Andy Crouch speak, uh, he's going to be a featured guest at our conference in August, August 25th and 26th at the ERLC National Conference. He'll be joined by Russell Moore, uh, Gabe Lyons, Matt Chandler, and many others as we revisit the themes of Dr. Moore's best-selling book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Uh, we'll have more information on my website if you click on the link for the National Conference. We'd love to have you there. Come for a couple of days, really get equipped and challenged and inspired about how evangelical Christians can live out the gospel in this culture. But for now, here's our conversation with Andy Crouch. So I'm here with my friend Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. So I want to talk about quite a few things. I think your books have been really formative for me and for a lot of Christians. And I want to start with your first book, Culture Making. Sure. And just getting us thinking about culture and work and the creation mandate. I think when a lot of Christians talk about culture, whether it's in sermons or in writing, and I've been guilty of this probably quite a bit, or even in our just casual conversations, we think of culture as sort of something out there (laughs) that we as Christians kind of... We stand outside of, and we just kind of say, well, culture's saying this, and we need to do this. And I think in culture making, you really kind of deconstructed that idea that culture making is something that we're actually doing, right? Yes, exactly. And I think we were, in a way, we weren't well served by a book that in some ways was really helpful, which was Richard Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture, Mm -hmm. which implies that there are two separate things, even though, you know, Christ is an English transliteration of a Greek mm. translation of a Hebrew word. Like it's embedded in culture. It's language, yeah. you know, and Jesus himself was a member of a culture, uh, spent 30 years of his life just doing what every human being does, apprenticing in and growing up into a culture. But by framing it as Christ and culture, you sort of create this impression that we can stand outside it, stand apart from it, critique it, uh, withdraw from it, when in fact, we, we are going to be expressing culture one way or another as Christians. And the question is just, are we doing that in a thoughtful way and a beneficial way or a sort of heedless way and often really not contributing much? It, it reminds me of growing up in church, the kind of reductionist way you would hear messages about, hey, don't be of the world. Yeah. And so 
certain things were considered worldly. We don't do that because we're not of the world. So movies and music. <laughs> right. But I remember as a young person thinking, wow, people in the world drive cars <laughs> and they have houses like, exactly. am I not supposed to do that? Where do I draw those lines? Right? Right. Right. Wow. Completely. And and then even the music and the movies, uh, I, I think it's rarely right. I wonder if there are any exceptions to this. It's rarely right to rule out a whole category of culture. Uh, it is, of course, the case that not just the movies we watch or the music we listen to, but also the houses we live in and the cars we drive can be part of a world system that is not um, doesn't serve human flourishing, doesn't respond to, uh, isn't obedient to God. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that it was a little too neat uh, for certain parts of the Christian world, at least, to say, we just don't do that part of mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. Um, we have to be more, we have to have a better index of discernment than that, I think. So, you know, talk to the typical faithful Christian who works a job and goes to church. He's creating culture, whether he realizes it or not, right? So if he's working at his yes. job, uh, whether he's making widgets or he's a plumber like my father was, or if he's a mailman, does he not realize that he is creating culture in many ways, right? I think one of the real sadnesses, uh, it seems to me, of um, the way chur- the church has often pastored people is pastors uh, have such a need to recruit volunteers. <laughs> yes. I mean, the church is a volunteer-led institution, and pastors have to motivate people. And so, under, and pastors, this is their lives. I mean, their lives is the church. So they emphasize all the sort of creative possibilities and importance of the church. But what we have not done is said, you as a human being, you are an image bearer of God. You are in the world. The way I would put it is to cultivate and create. So mm. some jobs you can sort of think of it as a spectrum. Some jobs are more about cultivating. Some are more about creating. Cultivating is just keeping good what's already good. Creating is adding something that will make the world more abundant and uh, realize the possibilities that God has placed in the world. And then the other dimension of culture is some of it is very material and some of it is very uh, symbolic. So, you know, literature is is words on a page, but it's really imagination and so forth. Mm -hmm. Plumbing is very material, even though you have to have also symbolic knowledge to be a plumber. Mm -hmm. So when you realize that culture is about everything we do, the most material things we do, the most symbolic things we do, and it's about the most we do to preserve the world, but also create, then suddenly you can map. I mean, plumbing is a huge part of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Farming is the, Mm -hmm. maybe the original part of that. Writing a book is part of that, but it's all, every job that you have has these qualities of some material addition and care for the world and some meaning that you add to the world some preserving and some innovating. Mm -hmm. And everyone in every job is part of that story. And the church has not told people, this is actually what human beings were meant to do all along. We were made to do this. And when you go out from our church and participate, bagging groceries at the grocery store, you know, being a lawyer, you know, whatever, you are actually doing what human beings were meant to do. Mm. It seems at times the church, pastors, well-meaning people, I might have probably done this myself without even realizing it, we rightly want to drive people to missions, yes. you know, to, for, yeah, for people yeah. to give up their lives, to go share the gospel overseas and totally. give up their lives, which we still want to make that call. But in, in doing so, have we done damage to the doctrine of vocation and doctrine of creation and maybe preached a kind of 
you know, spiritual dualism, if you will, that right. all that matters is a sort of churchy stuff and the thing you're doing Monday through Friday, well, you know, you can tithe and you can maybe <laughs> slip a tract under the cubicle. Well, and it's good you're providing for your family, but there's no there's no redeeming value, right? Exactly. And I think that um, that dualism made more sense when you could kind of assume a background Christendom reality, which is just a way of saying sort of an assumption that the culture is broadly in line with Christian values. And so when you go out to work, well, we're kind of all church-going people, and this is just what we do during the week. And the really radical call is let's expand. In a way, sometimes the vision very literally was let's expand Christendom, this world where culture and church align, to mm-hmm. other places where it doesn't align. Now that we are in a missional situation in our own culture, mm-hmm. we have to understand why we are doing the things we do during the week uh, in a in a theological and a biblical frame. And by the same token, the problem is if you go overseas uh, to a place that perhaps is less churched, and and let's say that you have your missionary work is tremendously successful, but if what you export is this kind of dualism <laughs> that says that the ordinary life of work and cultivation and care for your own cultural heritage and for the land that's around you and the people around you doesn't matter and the church matters, then we're just exporting this terrible, thin understanding of what it is to be really a person, not just a Christian. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think pastoring ought to be about it's really about two things at once. It's about helping people be the image bearers they were originally meant to be. That's just about what is it to be a faithful human being. And it is also this additional overlay that if you have been brought into the family of God, you are also now part of the mission of God in a special way. So we can't just go to our work and just routinely do it. We have to be on mission in that. And we have a specific mission that other human beings can't do because they're not connected to the redemptive story of God. But it is also the case that simply in working in the grocery store or working in the law office, you are fulfilling what you were meant to fulfill as a human being. Mm. Is some of it related to eschatology as well? Like if we have a... Yeah, absolutely. If we have an eschatology of renewal... Yes. That sort of shapes the way we think about our work, right? Yeah, totally. And so, you know, there have been these just very subtle, I believe, misreadings of certain key moments in Scripture, like in First Peter, I think it's First Peter, mm-hmm. where it says the heavens will be consumed by fire. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't say that about the earth. And people have sort of conflated. It actually says the, the earth will be cleansed, but it doesn't mm-hmm. say it'll be burned up and destroyed. So uh, yes, there's going to be this, uh, at the end of all things, there will be the, the renewal of all things. There will be, some things will disappear, apparently. And yet what's going to remain, according to Revelation 21, is the glory and the honor of the nations, the kings of the earth, bringing the glory of the honor of the nations into a city. Mm. And a city is a place that is absolutely saturated with culture. Mm. Uh, That's the difference between a city and a garden. A garden is nature with a little bit of cultivation or maybe a, a fair amount of cultivation. But a city, everything you see has been shaped by, let's say, by the the intention of a culture maker, whether it's God or, or us. And that's our destination. It's absolutely saturated with culture. And it's it seems that it's actually filled with the glory and honor of the nations that lived on in this time, in this age, and did whatever brought glory to God. That is going to be rescued. If you don't have that eschatology, then yes, most of what we do is just going to burn. And even just from a secular point of view, we're all going to die and the universe is going to sort of slowly fade out as the stars wink out. <laughs> yeah. But that's not what we believe as Christians. I think that contributes to a lot of the dissatisfaction that you know, everyday lay Christians might have with their with their job. I want to shift a little bit to what you wrote about, I think, really well in your second book, 
playing God about the use of power. Mm. And I think it it seems like that was a, I don't say a sequel, but a continuation yeah, of, for sure. of what you were saying in culture making. I mean, I think by taking on this idea of power, you really, you know, it's almost like the third rail in evangelical <laughs> leadership, you know, because we talk a lot about servant leadership. <laughs> yes, we do. We talk about, you know, we don't like to talk about power as being a good thing. Uh, w- one of the anecdotes you put in there that I thought was just great, and I've used this in, in some other settings, uh, quoted you in this, that you were with a, a powerful, you know, a popular megachurch leader. Yeah. And asking him about power, he's like, "No, we don't. We don't care about power. We're servant leaders here. You know, we share power." And then you walk with him into a room full of volunteers and staff, and everyone tightens up. And yes. and he didn't realize his own power, right? Yeah, it's very hard to assess your own power. Um, mm-hmm. I was with uh, someone just two days ago was with Sheree Harder, who's the president of the Trinity Forum in Washington. She spent a lot of time around very powerful mm-hmm. people, and they serve people who, who steward a lot of power. And she said, the interesting thing about all of us human beings is we are so much more aware of our vulnerabilities than we are of our authority. Mm. Uh, and so we always underestimate the power we have. But yeah, this pastor who said, I mean, the literal words were, we don't have power in our church. We're all servant leaders. <laughs> it's, it's just astonishing that someone who is you know, very smart, very insightful, can believe that there's no power. Of course there's power in your church. You have you have tremendous power. So the question is not, are we going to have power? It's how are we going to use it? Um, and and the way that, that the book Playing God is really a sequel to culture making is I really believe power all comes down to the image of God. Mm-hmm. and Or more precisely, which image are we bearing? So we can either, this is kind of the, the pun of the title, we can either play the true God. We can bear the image of the true God in the way we use our power, or we end up actually imaging a false god. We mm. become idols or we become perpetrators of injustice, which is just another way of saying mm. idolatry, actually. And and then the image that we present to the world is an image of uh, of a god who is not, not the real god, a god who abuses power, a god who abuses people, a god who doesn't actually care about people. Uh, and that's what idols are. So that's what's at stake, you know, and how we use the power that we all have. Do you think people are so scared of the word power because... You know, we've seen corrupted and abused mm-hmm. so radically. It seems like almost every institution in yeah. public life has disappointed us in the last yeah. several decades. Do you think that's yeah. why people are so kind of scared of of talking about power and uh, and about their own power? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Especially our own, because to admit that we had it. Mm-hmm. was to suggest that we ourselves are at risk of abusing it and being corrupted by it. Um, and so it would be so much easier if we didn't have it. And, I, you know, I think you're so right that we... Uh, <laughs> institutions used to be better at covering up the misuse of power, I think. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. When you look... I mean, there's been this collapse of American confidence in institutions over the last mm-hmm. 20, 30 years. The one institution that has stayed relatively unscathed is, very interestingly, the military. People still have confidence in the basic integrity of the military. And think about the fascinating fact that the military is the institution in American life that is most explicit about power. Everyone knows who has Hmm. power in the military because you literally wear it on your chest and on your shoulders. Uh, You you walk into the room, you know exactly who has power. There's a very specified way of handling it. And with that, the military has developed a system that – it can't it can't work in the exact same way at Southern Baptist headquarters or at CT, mm-hmm. but but they've developed a way of of holding people accountable for the power they have. And you know, interestingly, the military that's the most 
hierarchical and ranked is in some ways the place where I think you see the most servant leadership, where really officers, I mean, you don't get to be an officer usually unless you really care for the people that you lead. So it's interesting that that's the one institution, the institution that's willing to totally admit, yeah, we have power, not to mention we have guns and bombs and so forth, (laughs) but we also have personal power and it's attached to us and it's visible that that's actually the one people still kind of trust. Mm. Whereas the institutions where it's more fuzzy and harder to spot are actually the ones where it's more dangerous. I want to talk about institutions because you make a really good case, a biblical case, for the need of institutions, how they're necessary Mm -hmm. for human flourishing. I think a lot of people today are so anti-institutional. I don't remember, I mean, I'm still relatively young, 38, but... Even in my lifetime, I don't remember a more anti-institutional oh, time. No. Uh, I mean, even if you go back to, say, like, the Arab Spring, sort of, yes. you know, whether it was good or bad or not, but even in our own country with what we're seeing, just how do we explain to people that institutions are really necessary for human flourishing? Yeah. Well, it depends on what you mean by the word, and I want to use it. I, I've sort of borrowed the way that sociologists use the word, which is not just for bureaucratically structured organizations with large buildings and mm-hmm. big budgets. Now, that is a kind of institution, but I, I want to think about it as a, a broader set of things. An institution, the way that sociologists talk about it, is any cultural pattern that can be transmitted from generation to generation and also can spread over space. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the book I talk about the game of football, American football, Mm -hmm. which is an institution. Uh, Now, there's this big organization called the NFL, but you could actually have the institution of football without the NFL. And we Mm -hmm. did before the NFL really became the force that it is. And so you've got uh, a set of rules that are pretty constant. Mm -hmm. Like you look at a football game played in 1920, it's going to look almost like the game we play today with a few changes. That creates all these different roles people can play. And one of the big contributions institutions make is they give us many different ways to be human. So you Mm -hmm. can be human as a quarterback, you can be human as a fullback, you can be human as a tight end, you can be human as a coach, you can be human as a fan. And all those are different ways of participating in that institution that sort of call forth different things from us. And so they allow for the diversity of human gifts. And then, uh, and then that gets transmitted over time, and it can be replicated across space. So it doesn't just have to happen in one place, and it can happen over many generations. The reason institutions are so important is if, you really, if you're really serious about changing culture, what you m- have to mean by that is that generations from now, something's different. Well, how will that be? It'll only be if we can create something that can be handed on. And I think the biblical measurement for this is three generations. Uh, I think if you create and sustain a cultural pattern, not just for yourself, not just for your children, but your children's children, and it's healthy and it's beneficial, you've actually changed culture for the better, Mm. which is why the biblical blessing is, may you live to see your children's children. And it's really interesting that the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, Mm -hmm. basically tells the story of three generations, Abraham, and and this is the sort of way you talk about Israel in in the Bible, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Mm. because it takes three generations to embed this knowledge in the case of the people of Israel, who God, who the real God is, uh, how we relate to the real God, what our story is going to be with this God. It takes that long Mm. and, and it has to go that deep. So... Yes, the modern bureaucratic organization is one way to do this uh, that has strengths and weaknesses. But but really the question is, what am I investing in that will still be powerful and available and beneficial for my children's children? Mm. Uh, and I, I think one of the 
oh my gosh, one of the tragedies of church in the last generation is in a quest to be relevant, we got really good at making churches for people like me. Uh, and then the really innovative one said, oh no, let's make a really great children's program. So this is for the second generation. So you build churches that are just you know great at serving children. And this is all legitimate in its own way. But no one is asking, if I were planning a church for my children's children, who, let's say the kids who aren't even born yet, what would I do? What kind of worship would we have? What kind of, what kind of music would we have? And instead, we're just thinking about this contemporary moment rather than thinking about what would be lastingly a blessing. That was one of the more fascinating parts of the book when you talked about the three generation hmm. and tying into scripture, Abraham, Isaac, yep. and Jacob. And it makes a lot of sense where essentially the first generation is sort of pioneer, yes. right? And the second generation has memory of that. Yes. So they remember, they kind of remember, but the third generation has, yes. no, has no knowledge of that first. And so as I was thinking about this, it's so true, even with technological innovations, yes. right? Yes. So my... I remember when my father, when I was a kid, bought this massive car phone. It was like a thousand dollars, and you can only speak like a briefcase. Yeah, you can only use it for like under thirty seconds. <laughs> Otherwise, it was an enormous amount of money. So, in my generation, I remember being in college and nobody had phones, you know. Yeah. And then, I, I guess when I got in college, everyone everyone started to have a, a flip phone. A or flip something. phone. Yeah. My kids. Yeah. My 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 daughter asked me almost every week, she cannot fathom a world where there were not smartphones. And yes. like, what was that like, Dad? And <laughs> did you guys have running water? Did you guys have... I mean, so that that concept is so true. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. But it, it also kind of gives us instruction, right? If we really want to make long-lasting transformation, thinking generationally, right? Yes, exactly. And I and, and so the third generation is the one that, that in a way has never known anything else. Mm-hmm. And this is the real test, right? And it's why so many things fail. I mean, a lot of uh, family businesses, for example, mm-hmm. survive the first handoff to the next, to the immediate mm-hmm. next generation, but they don't make it to the third. It's just a fact of how mm-hmm. small family businesses or even large family businesses work. The third generation is the test because it has the whatever you're handing on has to be sufficiently robust, you could say, that it can last even beyond that initial experience of the founders. The other thing I would say is the third generation always inherits the brokenness of the original thing. Mm. So this is so true for Jacob. So the basic story in Israel, and actually the basic biblical story, is is sibling rivalry, right? It's, Mm -hmm. It's contest between brothers for who will be the favorite. And you look at how you get to Jacob's Jacob and his family, and he sort of singles out Joseph as his favorite, and it generates this massive trauma in the family. But that goes all the way back to Abraham, and it really goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Mm. And it's the third generation, often the third and fourth, that have to work out the con- the founding conflicts. This happened in the United States with the Three-Fifths Compromise in the Constitution. Like built into the institution of the United States by the founders is this unsustainable lack of recognition for African-American, mm-hmm. you know, hum- humanity, really. And it's the third and fourth generation that fight uh, fight a huge war mm-hmm. to sort out this basic conflict that was there from the beginning. It seems like the third generation has to be almost reformers. In, I mean, yeah. if an institution is to survive, yeah. they have to be reformers uh, yeah. rather, rather than sort of anarchists and wanting to 
burn it down or something. Yes, ex- and that is the question. It's it's this. So institutions are both the strongest things we have. I mean, the longest lasting institutions. You know, universities mm-hmm. a thousand years now, monasteries a thousand years, mm-hmm. the church itself two thousand years. Yeah, um, they're the longest lasting things we have, but they're very fragile uh, because they all have these conflicts kind of woven into them. And you think about why does uh, Genesis spend like the, is it the last 15 chapters on the story of Joseph, basically? It's because the story of Joseph has to deal with all those conflicts. And the question is, is this family just going to break apart all these descendants of Abraham that were mm-hmm. promised to him? Are they, or is there going to somehow be reconciliation? And that's why the end of Genesis is so important, because against all odds in some ways, Joseph achieves this reconciliation with his brothers that that knits back together that institution and keeps it alive mm. even to the present day in some ways. Um, and it is the third and fourth generation that have to <laughs> – they, they it, it hinges on them in many ways. You mentioned something about preparing for planning a church for your grandchildren yes. and their children. Yeah. And it struck me that I wonder if, you know, one of the big movements – in evangelicalism is younger people, ironically, going back and asking for more liturgy, more tie to church history, kind of fed up with the sort of rootless evangelicalism that they grew up with that was really geared for contemporary life. And they're saying, no, we want to be tied back into something. Is there something there that people yearn for sort of traditions passed down that that are good? Well, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to me. Uh, so I'm a musician, and mm-hmm. so I think about this sometimes in terms of music. Like, there's an yeah. incredibly rich musical history that we have in in America that is really two streams. It's the cla- well, it's three. It's the classical stream. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, folk stream of probably your and my ancestors, mm-hmm. both the Scots Irish kind of folk, and then it's the the gospel, which originally originates in Africa. Uh, it's the black gospel tradition, and which leads to jazz and all that. Mm-hmm. And then I go to the churches that are growing, and the music that we're doing is so simple and shallow. I mean, even mm-hmm. when it's really well done, it's just so little of what we could be doing, mm-hmm. the music we could be making together. But I want to believe people want those roots. Mm-hmm. But when I look at where do people show up, they seem to settle for really thin stuff. Mm-hmm. So, But it seems like, I mean... I hope, I mean, I hope you're right. One of the things Dr. Morris said, and I, I totally agree with it, he says... He hears more hymns being sung in churches where everybody's wearing jeans and they're under, <laughs> say they're under forty-five, than in the older boomer churches. Uh, yeah, that could be. That I hope that's right. And I, I, you know, when you think about liturgy, not just music, um, you know, this goes all the way back to really the worship practices of the synagogue. I mean, mm-hmm. it was how the Jewish people learned in the absence of a temple or when the temple was kind of a mess, <laughs> even, yeah. you know, um, how to sustain worship life. Essentially, how to, it, it was an answer to the question, how do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Mm-hmm. And when Jesus gets up to read from Torah in Luke 4, he's, he's part of this liturgy that's developed. And that really was the liturgy that the first Christians adopted that comes down and, and for a thousand years is the the universal pattern of worship. And then we get kind of free church worship in the last mm-hmm. couple hundred years. But there's something about that bedrock mm. that served literally thousands of years of people mm-hmm. trying to be faithful and to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. I think you're going to need. And it goes back in a way to what we were talking about earlier, that when you can just sort of assume Christendom around mm-hmm. you, maybe you can just sing 
bunch of sort of shallow courses yeah. and have a really long talk and then go have donuts. But maybe in order to actually live as faithful people mm-hmm. in a certain kind of exile, we're going to need something a little thicker and richer. I, I totally agree with this. And as I've been enduring this election season, I, I go back to Martin Luther's uh, song, you know, the Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not, not for, him. for him. His rage we can uh. endure. I'm thinking about that more and more in this time that we're in. Wow. So I want to pivot to your current book, Strong and Weak, which I think, again, is probably a continuation of yep. what you talked about on power. And thinking about using power and using strength on behalf of, of the vulnerable, I think about your book as we're in this election season, we're in the sort of, I call it sort of the age of Trump, mm-hmm. you know? The movement, the sort of he represents, not just him, but this idea of just winning, dividing the world into winners and losers, and yeah. we're the winners and you're the losers, and that sort of mentality. What does that say about about kind of where we are <laughs> as a culture? Well, it is the, the sort of thesis of my book, Strong and Weak, is that the human... That, that human flourishing comes from authority and vulnerability together. That actually the best moments in our lives, the moments when we're most available for God and others are moments when we both have authority and vulnerability. The, the drama, the tragic drama of the human story is we want one without the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want authority without vulnerability. We want a way to be strong without having to be weak. And the Trump moment, let's hope it's... <laughs> oh, I f- hope it's a moment. A fleeting moment, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Basically, is this just bursting out into public in a specially raw way, this idea that we can be great without any, with you know, I mean, never having to admit you've sinned, never mm. having to ask God for, I mean, it's truly astonishing how bald it is. Yeah. I would say, though, in a way... It's just a more blatant form of what is the temptation of every nation and has been the temptation Mm. in political life in the U.S. for a long time, Mm. which is to see ourselves as a nation of overwhelming strength and to use our strength to minimize our vulnerability. Mm. Um, So even though Trump is extreme, I think he's an extreme version of what other politicians actually have promised as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas really great political leadership, and I think we have had a few of these in, in American history, uh, somehow manages to both encourage, I mean, it's encourage in the deep sense of the word, putting courage into the heart of people and saying, yes, there are risks we have to face and even battles that we have to fight and, and also things we have to give up, but that won't, uh, that actually can go with our authority. It can actually be part of being strong, mm-hmm. but wow, we don't see much of that. And, uh, you know, I think one classic thing we're seeing on both, from both parties in different ways is this idea that. I can get what I want at someone else's expense. So Trump says, we'll build a wall and make the Mexicans pay for it. Uh, But Bernie Sanders says, we're going to give everyone all the protections we want from the state and all the education and healthcare we want, and we'll make Wall Street pay for it, Mm -hmm. which is... Both of these are completely unrealistic. Neither is going to happen. And both of them promise you can have the authority you want with no risk and no vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And so it's not actually just, unfortunately, in a way, it's not just Trump. It's kind of deeper. Um, And it is the dynamic of human communities. We want to be told we can be strong without risk. But that's actually not true. (laughs) I wonder if it also speaks to the way we think about power. You know, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, it seems like we've been dominated by sort of grievance Yes. Politics. And so yeah. amassing power is no longer about 
how can I get to a place where I can use my power and influence mm. for the good of others? But it's, you know, we've been shut out. Yes. So whether it's white working class voters that yes. like Trump or white working class voters that like Bernie, yeah. we've been shut out. Wall Street's been in power and yeah. now it's our turn. Yep. And so you're seeing a sort yep. of class and race division based on that, right? Mm-hmm. Completely, completely. And it's understandable. And it has it is not wrong. I mean, there has there have been massive losses, I mean, in every sense, uh, mm-hmm. among the communities that are really flocking to these leaders. Mm-hmm. And oh, if only we had leaders at every level, not just presidential candidates. I mean, presidential candidates are like the ultimate trailing indicator. Like they, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the the, what really matters in some ways is is local leaders, I think, starting with church leaders, not just mm-hmm. pastors, but anyone who, who's a who's trying to actually follow Christ in the world and lead others. We need to be paying deeper attention to the vulnerabilities around us and, and what resources there are to meet those with proper authority. Mm-hmm. And if we did that, the market, in a way, for these kind of celebrity national leaders would change. Mm-hmm. But until, the, until it changes, until what we want changes, we'll get, you know, what we... Want. <laughs> I wonder if in some ways the church has unintentionally modeled the kind of leadership we're seeing at the political level where where leadership and getting to that place, you know, we're, we're sort of in a celebrity reality TV culture. Yep. Everyone wants their 15 minutes of fame. Yep. But fame and influence is now seen as something that can empower me only, yeah. as opposed to something that where I can get to a place where I can serve others. I mean, obviously not every prominent pastor or prominent celebrity feels that way, but it's sort of baked into into the cake in many ways. It is. And fame is it's a it's the you know, it's so powerful, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it has such effect on systems and people. But the the thing about it is it's very hard to actually turn it into flourishing for other people. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very brittle and not a very useful form of power. And and so the exceptions, the people who actually really try to transmute, <laughs> I, if I were at Southern Baptist headquarters, I'd say transubstantiate <laughs> um, their fame into real flourishing for, for lots of people. That's a really rare thing. I think about Bono from U2, who mm-hmm. has, if anybody's done it, Bono has done it. But it's been very difficult, and it's actually required him, I think, to go through qu- quite a deep process of sanctification. Whether I mean, I'm not trying mm-hmm. to pronounce on Bono's eternal destiny or you know whatever, but but it mm-hmm. seems like he's been very serious about trying to turn it into something else. But it's actually really hard to do. the The problem with being a celebrity is the almost almost the only thing you can keep you can do with a celebrity power is keep being a celebrity, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to build things. and And then the things that got you there are not the things that actually build flourishing widely for others or that expose you to real vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So it's, it absolutely happens in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it has set up set us up for, for these kinds of leaders that we see in the political realm as well. So I, I get two more questions. Uh, oh. w- one, I think uh, you, you've talked and written quite a bit about your work with International Justice Mission. Mm. And one of the things that really struck me was the way you write about how the right use of power uh-huh. and influence and resources can be used to empower others and to help those in vulnerability. You want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, two things. I mean, so IJM, International Justice Mission, 
there's two things about it. Well, you know, one is it's the use of tremendous amounts of power. The power we have is uh, they've got lawyers, they've got like mm-hmm. former CIA, FBI, mm-hmm. they've got guys who when they shake my hand, I wonder if my hand's going to come back. <laughs> I mean, these are powerful people and it's in the service of the vulnerable. But the other thing that iJam did that was brilliant is they did grassroots investigation and they went to really dangerous places. And other human rights organizations were just working at the like 30,000 foot level where you get to be in meetings in Geneva and complain about international human rights. But no one was going to the slums where a girl can't go to the, to just to uh, use the bathroom without mm. risking being raped. And they went there. And so they made themselves vulnerable. So really beneficial uses of power are on behalf of the vulnerable, but also involve the powerful actually taking a lot of risk on mm. themselves. Mm. Last question as I think about strong and weak. You know, how do I recognize the power that I have and use the influence that I have to serve others? And so mm-hmm. what what word would you give to Christians, whether they're leaders, whether they're they don't consider themselves leaders or they are or they don't see the, the power that they have? What, what advice mm-hmm. would you give them to to really humbly and effectively leverage the influence they have for those who are vulnerable and can't speak for themselves? Hmm. I would, you know, uh, in the book I talk about authority as capacity for meaningful action and vulnerability as exposure to meaningful risk. And I think the best thing we can do, and I try to do this now that I've come up with this language, I, I use it myself every morning as I'm thinking about my day, I ask myself, where can I meaningfully act today? Mm. And then what meaningful risk can I take today? Mm. And ideally those two things will go together in some way. And, you know, any given day, there's only a few things I'm really going to be able to do. There'll be meaningful action. And there, but there will be some chance for that. And there will be some moment where I can take a meaningful risk. I think if we just asked ourselves that question on a regular basis, we'd, dis- we'd actually discover the vulnerable around us. Uh, we'd, God would alert us to the places where we can make a difference. And, uh, and just step by step, we'd become available for God's work in the world. Mm. That's really great. Well, thank you so much, Andy, for joining me on the podcast. Great conversation. I really appreciate your work, and I encourage all my listeners to go out and buy your books and read them and uh, subscribe to Christianity Today. They definitely need to do that as a first as a first step, right? That's right. That's the meaningful action you can take. Exactly. Today. You can do this, yes. But thank you for joining thank me. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk. Well, that was a great conversation with Andy Crouch. As a reminder, he's going to be a featured speaker at the ERLC National Conference, August 25th and 26th here in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information on that, go to my website, danieldarling.com and click on the link there. We'd love to have you join us here in Music City. Uh, If you enjoyed this conversation, would you send us an email, wayhome at erlc.com or write a review on iTunes or Stitcher or however you Uh, receive your podcasts. Uh, We also want to let you know that previous episodes of The Way Home are available on danieldarlin.com on the podcast page. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home podcast. The Way Home is recorded and produced by Gary Lancaster. Research is conducted by David Clausen and scheduling is handled by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. 